Good morning, God. As you gather us today um, and settle us, would you remind us that we are written on one another's hearts? And would your presence kiss us upon our heads and within our hearts today and give us strength um, to be your people? Amen. This morning's message is not the one that I brought with me. Um, I felt moved to last evening and this morning to do something different. And so if it seems even more convoluted than you've come to expect, there's a reason for that. So about 35 years ago, I first got involved with friends. I, um, I was working with um, street kids and kids in prison. And I felt moved to, to do pastoral ministry. And the church that I was working with didn't feel quite at home. I was looking for, I was looking for a home. I knew I needed a group of people that was just a little bit better than me. They would keep moving me in the right direction because I knew left to my own devices, I would crash and burn. That was my history. So I started reading church history and I ran across the Quakers and I thought, I need to meet these people. Because in my, in my time of prayer and in my Bible reading, I had come to the place of believing that all of Jesus' followers were called to a life of nonviolence. And then similarly, I had come to some conclusions about being called to simplicity and my my community thought, well, that's odd, but okay for you. And, and I, I wanted to be a part of a community that nurtured that and, and really encouraged it, helped me understand what it meant because all of this was still so new to me. And so, so I checked out the unprogrammed meeting in my, that was near me and the programmed meeting. And I didn't see that these people were going to have any openings anytime soon. And so I decided, <laughs> I decided to make my home with the pastoral friends. And, and they became my mother. Because when I came to faith, my family no longer understood me. And I honestly lost most of my friends, and I felt like an orphan. And so that group was my mother. And I was really eager to get to know... Quakers more broadly because I was reading all about them. And I know this never happens in New England yearly meeting, but sometimes friends can be just a little bit myopic. <laughs> I know. And a little bit insular. And, and though we know that there's other Quakers around us, we really think, but we're the real Quakers, right? Those people are, are imposters. And so FWCC was having a gathering near where I lived, and I was really eager to get to know these other Quakers. And, but I was discouraged from going a little bit because, you know, those other Quakers, they might rub off on you in ways <laughs> that are not so good. But I'm a little bit like Greg Wood's three-year-old, right, that he talked about yesterday. Why can't we kick the dog or the cat, Mommy? Why can't we play with the bad Quakers? <laughs> and, so, and so I went to the FWCC gathering, and the theme was on peacemaking. And I, we, as a community, as a, as a local church, we had just worked through the book of Romans together. And one of the things that I, as we dug into that book, one of the things that kept rising to the surface to me was how many times reconciliation 
is mentioned, and it sparkled like a diamond to me. And, and that was just in my head and in my heart. And so I went to the FWCC gathering, and, and on the first day at, towards mid-afternoon, there was an extended time of worship, and people rose and spoke uh, about the theme of peacemaking. And I felt moved to speak, and I talked about some of the connections that I had made in my thinking about the Book of Romans. And then we moved on to worship sharing groups. And as we were taking our seats and, and settling in, um, the, the group was, was, for, was gathering, and, the, and the, the facilitator was about to start. And the person sitting next to me turned to me and said in front of the group, are you a pastor? <laughs> and I said, yeah. And I said, and I, said I am. And I was a pastor. I was working part-time for a meeting. I made $1,000 a month. We had two small children. We had a Salvadoran refugee who had come through the sanctuary movement in the early years and was living with us. And we were trying to help him get asylum. I worked for a family in the evening cleaning the floors of the local supermarket. And I cleaned vacation rentals in my spare hours. And we always had enough. We always had enough. God took care of us. And I was a pastor. Two years in from becoming a Quaker, right, which, which made me question the discernment of that community, that they let me, <laughs> right, to quote the great Woody Allen, that great theologian Woody Allen, why would I want to be a part of a group that would have me as a member? <laughs> right, and especially, why would, why would to have me be a pastor? And so there I was, a pastor, and so she turned to me, and she got in my face, and she said, you're everything that's wrong with the religious society of friends. <laughs> now, I'm kind of a half-glass-full person, <laughs> and so my immediate response was, usually it takes me eight to ten years to be everything that's wrong with a community, <laughs> let alone a society. I thought, I really have found my people. <laughs> and so that set an awesome tone for worship sharing. <laughs> but we muddled through, and, and thankfully, because of the skill of the facilitator, it was all fine. And at the end of it, people got up and, and walked out and and the person sitting next to me stayed seat, seated. And so I stayed seated. And we sat there for a while, and I finally said, I think you have more to say to me. And, and she didn't use the word abomination, but she said, the pastoral system is, is ruining the religious society of friends. It's poisoning it. And... And she talked about it for about a half an hour, and then, and then she went a little bit deeper, and she talked about how in her, her, in her experience, the Bible had been weaponized to harm people. And then she talked, went a little bit deeper and talked about how her own experience of being in a church that had really wounded her and hurt her. And, and so we were there together for about an hour, and I said, I'm really sorry. And... My experience is so different than that. Maybe we can talk about it. And so we did. Over the course of the next few days, we sat down at meals, and we went for walks, and we talked, and 
She heard me talk about being released from ministry rather than being hired to do the ministry. We talked about a sense of calling. We talked about shared ministry. We talked a whole, about a whole bunch of different things. And at the end of the week, she said, because my meeting was really close to where the retreat was, she said, I'd really like to come on Sunday morning. And so she came, and she stayed in our home, and we went to worship that morning. And she, we went, she came back and had lunch with us. And she said, I, I rather liked that. <laughs> and I've really missed the singing. And I think she left not, no longer believing that we were the devil, although the devil may still live in our neighborhood. <laughs> but, it was, but there was a difference. So this morning, um, I've been, I was thinking this week that how I've been on the business end of plain spoken messages by friends over the years across the theological spectrum, whether it's conservative or liberal, um, progressive, evangelical, we Quakers have a really strong conviction about speaking up and to the point, and often without too much regard for people's feelings. And I think for the most part, that's good. And it's a powerful part of who we are because we can't control the thoughts and feelings of other people. And maybe we serve the world best by speaking as plainly and to the point as we can. And certainly a lot of our spiritual foremothers and forefathers modeled this for us. And so many of them we revere for it, though sometimes I wonder how much we would enjoy it if they were part of our meeting. But there's no doubt that the relentless and direct and oftentimes confrontational, confrontational nature of prophetic ministry is really essential. And again, there's tons of examples. But I also have a sense sometimes that we friends believe that only really adversarial ministry is prophetic among Quakers. That unless we're really just saying it in as bald face a way as we can, it's not really Quaker, and it's otherwise sort of accommodationist. And maybe that's true, but I've wondered, reading early friends sometimes, whether they always needed to handle the situation the way they did, right? Or some of our more modern friends who are in your face. Is that the only way that could have been handled here? I wonder sometimes whether it could have been communicated in a way that would have actually gained a better hearing that wouldn't have pushed people away, that wouldn't have made them leave in shame or, or immediately fight back. My understanding of prophetic ministry shifted a few years ago as a result of, of watching one of my friends really closely. He'd been a mentor for me and a guide in learning how to speak the truth and to model faithfulness, especially in a way that inspired a real sense of transformation and what I think I admired most about him was this deep compassion that he carried for friends and for the world and for even people who were his adversaries. And I think there was a sense that his call to prophetic ministry was really undergirded by this sense of love. But then something happened in his life. And hope, which is so integral to the prophet's method and, and, and message, gave way to a sense of despair. And that ability to see accurately through the lens of God's justice and righteousness uh, seemed more jaded by cynicism than anything else. 
And that prophetic capacity to articulate God's will and wisdom and to, pr- to apply it creatively within the context, because that's really what a prophet does. Takes God's wisdom and will and helps us understand how does it get fleshed out in this moment in time. It began to sound much more like nagging and venting. And that ability to see, to see an unseen, a yet unseen reality, and to paint a picture of what we are called into uh, gave way a lot more to rehashing old problems and to grousing about all the things that we were against. And whatever love and compassion that this friend seemed to hold for other people seemed like it was missing. And in the years leading up to his death, as, as his message began to repel more people than it began to attract, I kept thinking of the Apostle Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 13. It says, If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and knowledge but have not love, I'm nothing. Love, even and maybe especially the love of a prophet, is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It's not proud. It's not rude or self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrong. Such love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It protects, it trusts, it hopes. It always perseveres. Always I've been rereading the prophets recently, thinking about the renewal of prophetic ministry among friends, and it's probably going to come through the next generation, I imagine, but I hope it comes. And along the way, I've been repeatedly drawn to the book of Hosea, which models for me a quality of prophetic ministry that I think we need to pay attention to. Um, The book of Hosea is an interesting and challenging read. It's at least rated R. So be careful with it, but I encourage you to read it. And it begins with this explicit command by Yahweh, the Hebrew God, to the prophet to go and marry an adulterous woman and to have children and to be a family and to love her, to really love her. This is the life I'm calling you to, and it's a model of my life, God says, with my people. And in the next chapters, um, in the next chapters, Gomer, Hosea's wife, spurns him for other lovers repeatedly and boldly. And like I said, it's a painful book to read. It's painful to watch, to watch how this harms her and how it harms him and the impact it has on the children. It's painful to see the reminder of how women are often systematically abused when they live within a system of patriarchy and exploitation. It's a really painful story. It's messy. And it also shows some of the cosmic pain that lives in our world as people lack a sense of fidelity to God. And as you look at the life of Gomer, you're drawn into her story and you begin, if you're, if, you're, if you're watching, you may even catch a glimpse of yourself. And so do read the book. Read the hard choices that are made. Read the relentless devotion that's expressed, the cost of love when it's rejected. 
read about what resilient love can look like. Love that won't let go. Not that it can't let go, but it won't let go because it has such hope, such fragile hope that reconciliation, real reconciliation can occur. In the story, Hosea, as akin to God, as a mirror of God, accepts the challenge of loving his partner back into the family. He doesn't pretend there's no problem. He speaks the truth often and many times with an edge to it. But he acts in a way that restores her dignity and pledges to remain at her side. And it's a love that's patient and suffers and it's relentless and often passionate. And in chapter 11, the imagery shifts from from spouse to spouse to parent-child. It's when the relationship is at a real low ebb and it's looking hopeless. And in the story, God gets angry, really angry at what's going on. And I know that that's not a popular topic that God would ever get angry because we want a God who only will love But in this story, the anger arises out of a real deep sense of love. It's the love of a parent. The love that a parent shows when they're so exasperated by their surly, dishonest, um, self-harming, disrespectful teenager who resists them at every turn, who turns and says to the mother, And yes, amen. <laughs> and, and the same to the father. I'm better off without you. And the teen has turned its back on the parents and is heading out the door, and there's a sense that this, is, this may be the last time I ever see you. And so we pick the story up in, in verse 11 or chapter 11. And God is saying to Israel, Israel, when Israel was a child, I loved that little one. And out of Egypt, I called my beloved. The more I called to them, the further they went from me. They kept sacrificing to the Baals, and they burned incense to idols. And yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. And I took them in my arms, but they did not know that I had healed them. I led them with bands of human kindness and with cords of love. In the next part of this passage, God's anger flares a little bit. I treated them like those who who lift infants to their cheeks, and I bent down to them and fed them. That's the tenderness. And then this transition happens, this sense of exasperation and frustration of love rejected, and yet they will, they will return to the land of Egypt, and Assyria will be their king, because they've refused to return to me. The sword will strike wildly in their cities, and it will consume the bars of their gates, and it will take everything because of their schemes. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they cry out to the Most High, God will not raise them up. This is God at God's most exasperated self. And maybe there are parents in this room who felt that way. Like you've done your level best and it's just being thrown in your face and you're being told that was not nearly good enough. 
And then between verse 7 and 8, there's this pause. It's not written into the text, but but it's there. There's a pause. And I can't say how long, but something happens in God's heart. It says, how can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand over Israel? How can I make you like Admon? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart winces. It recoils. In the Greek, or in the Hebrew, the word there implies there's this earthquake that happens in God's heart. My compassion grows warm and tender, and I will not act on my anger. I won't return to destroy Ephraim, for I am God, and I'm not a human being, the Holy One in your midst. I won't come in harsh judgment. They will walk after the Lord, who roars like a lion, and when she roars, her children will come trembling from the west. God's heart has an earthquake. On the verge of rage, God slows God's self. God stills and steals God's self and bears the wound of love in God's heart. And instead of anger being the final word, there's a deep mercy and compassion that's formed and expressed. And a bewildered and amazed and and a bit frightened child scrambles back home to her mother at the sound of her roar. What's the power of the prophetic word when it's rooted in love? Early on in my spiritual journey, I ran across the writings of Dorothy Day, and she said this, I really only love God as much as the person I love the least. Sit with that one for a moment. And imagine that person that you're struggling to love the most. Why are you all looking at me that way? (laughs) Imagine the person you struggle to love the least. And our urge to be prophetic voices to our nation, to the members of that political party, to the members of those Quakers, to those of another class, another gender, another race, to the ones I fail to appreciate, that I struggle with the most, I think, I know for me, I need to ask the question, what does my measure of love say about my love for God and about my capacity to truly speak to them? I've been rereading Miroslav Volf's great book, Exclusion and Embrace. Volf is the director of the Yale Center for Faith and Culture, and he's written extensively on the intersection between spirituality and politics and culture. And he's a Croatian Christian who lived through the Serbian War and came from one of the most marginalized communities at that time. And the book emerged out of a, out of a conversation he was having when he was writing his dissertation. And... Um, he was asked the question by one of his professors, could he as a Croat really, really be able and willing to embrace the Chetnik 
Could he really imagine the possibility of being reconciled with Serb fighters who, as he said in the book, sowed desolation in my native country, herding people into concentration camps, raping women, burning down churches, and destroying cities? It's a really brilliant, disturbing, and difficult book to read, which tries to consider the question, one of faith's most vexing questions, how does one remain loyal to the demand of the oppressed and to, the, and to the demands of justice, and also remain loyal to the gift of forgiveness for the perpetrator. Are those mutually exclusive? Or is there, in fact, some third way where true and thorough reconciliation is possible? And the book doesn't offer any easy answer All he admits is from a human perspective, it feels impossible. But as a follower of the crucified and risen one, he believes it can be and must be possible. So in an era where we're rightly focused on the demands of justice, we are. And being a prophetic presence, Wolf reminds us that there's this other matter that we we shouldn't forget. We shouldn't put it away because we do so at our peril. It's how to embrace the other, the enemy. The one who's everything that's wrong with the religious society of friends. The Chetniks of our lives who perpetrate evil that we know we need to stand against. So when it comes to being a prophetic people who so desperately and urgently want to change the world, I'm mindful of what a wise African-American Baptist preacher said to me at a peace gathering a few years ago. He said, you can't be a prophet among people you do not love. So today in our time, maybe it's okay to even add among the people we love the least. So can we begin to imagine ourselves, friends, as more than prophets? More than prophets, but ones who are called to do the impossible by listening for ways to reconcile ourselves and others to those who seem to stand just beyond love's reach. And again, in our urge to speak truth to power, to be plain spoken, to live into that bold and oftentimes adversarial history of our prophetic Quaker tradition. I wonder what it might also mean in the process of doing that to try and see what love can do and not see them as somehow mutually exclusive, but but that right third way, which actually actually embodies um, the very love of God.